Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. American capitalism is a system that has been the bedrock of our nation's prosperity, but is now facing challenges that could redefine its very essence. Imagine a room with just 12 individuals. These 12 hold the strings to the vast majority of America's economic power. The big four index funds, Vanguard, State Street, Fidelity, and BlackRock, now control over 20% of the votes of the S&P 500 companies. This concentration of power is something we've never seen before. On a parallel track with this, private equity giants like Apollo and Blackstone, Carlyle, and KKR, which just purchased Simon & Schuster, have amassed a staggering $2.7 trillion in assets. Their modus operandi is taking over public companies, pulling them out of the public eye, and reshaping them away from public discourse and scrutiny. This isn't just about economics. It's about the very ethos of democracy and transparency. The balance between capitalism, which naturally gravitates towards scale, and the ideals of American democracy, which champion a fair distribution of power. All of this seems at a tipping point. The notion of the problem of 12 is more than a term of art on Wall Street. It's a stark reality that we have to grapple with today. In recent years, this problem of 12 has emerged as a critical concern, highlighting the disproportionate influence of a select few institutions wielded over the nation's economic landscape. Yet, in an era marked by heightened partisanship and polarization, even the most pragmatic solutions face intense scrutiny and debate, further complicating our path forward. To help us better understand this landscape and how important it is to both our economic and political well-being, I'm joined by John Coates. John Coates is the John F. Kogan Professor of Law and Economics at Harvard Law School, where he also serves as Deputy Dean and Research Director of the Center on the Legal Profession. He has served as General Counsel and Acting Director of the Division of Corporate Finance at the SEC and was a partner in the distinguished law firm Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz. He's been a consultant to the Department of Justice, the Department of Treasury, and the New York Stock Exchange, and it is my pleasure to welcome John Coates here to talk about his latest work, The Problem of 12, When a Few Financial Institutions Control Everything. John Coates, thanks so much for being with us on the Who, What, Why podcast. Jeff, I'm delighted to be able to talk with you. Well, it is great to have you here. Before we get into the problem of 12 and the consequences of this consolidation, explain to our listeners a little bit about what index funds are and, and really what private equity represents, because they really are at the core of this conversation. Sure. They're, um, both index funds and private equity funds are asset management companies. That is, they, um, they solicit and get financial assets from other people, and then they manage them. They invest them in, in, in different ways. Uh, they're, they're quite distinct in their overall models. Um, but the reason I'm talking about them in the same book is they're both growing and have been growing for the past 25 years at more or less the same pretty amazing pace, about 15% growth rate annually compounded average every year for the past 25 years. And so they're the modern success stories in the financial industry. Um, now, index funds, just to sketch them in case people maybe even invested them but don't really understand how they're structured. They're they're really pretty simple. They're uh, a, a legal 
enterprise, a fund that collects money from thousands, if not millions of people, and then takes that money and buys the stock of all the companies in an index, which is usually just a list um, created by a third party, typically S&P or um, Misky is another index provider. Uh, the index funds track those companies by buying all their stocks on behalf of their investors. And because it's such a simple uh, investment strategy, it's really it's hard to call it even a strategy other than just to say we're going to buy all the companies. Um, they can do it at an incredibly low cost. And that's the basic pitch that has attracted more and more money over time to the index fund industry. It's not that they're going to do a great job necessarily picking and choosing companies. In fact, they're not going to try to do that at all. Instead, they're just going to keep their costs really, really low, which means that the fees they can charge and still make a, make some profit themselves could be really, really low. And then that ultimately produces a product which means you're basically going to get the market return, which is generally pretty good for stocks over a, you know, a, a 25-year uh, span of time. Yes, the stock market goes up and down, but it generally uh, outperforms other kinds of investments. So that's the index fund product world. Let me say one last thing about index funds. Um, they do better the bigger they get because as with many things in life and especially in finance, they can do the same buying and holding at an ever lower average cost as they get bigger and bigger. The same way that Walmart can you know, sell things at an incredibly low price in part because Walmart is so big, basically the index funds are similar. And that's what's contributing to their growth is that the big guys just get better and better at it over time as they gather more assets. Private equity. Let me say a quick word about that industry. Very different model. Um, they don't buy stock really in, in, in a normal sense. They buy companies. They buy the whole company. They might buy stock, but they buy 100% of it typically of a given business. Uh, oh, and as, as a way to raise the money to buy that company, they borrow a lot. So they, they're private equity. They're raising equity capital, stock exposure from their own investors. But when it comes time to buy the businesses that they buy, they typically borrow a substantial amount of the money they need for that. So it's a very debt-heavy way of investing, ultimately, and therefore financially risky, which means they have to be pretty ruthless about the way they run the businesses after they buy them. They have to really cut costs. They have to focus on efficiencies. Uh, they have to typically lay workers off in order to get the costs down. And so they're, they're quite um, distinct in the way they manage. Uh, businesses relative typically to other kinds of corporate owners. They buy and hold for five to 10 years, and then they traditionally would sell them back to public investors, um, individuals, as well as index funds on the stock exchange. But uh, over the last 25 years, they've moved away from that uh, form of exit, as they call it. Uh, and instead, they now sell them typically to other private equity funds or even increasingly to themselves, they'll sell from one fund to another fund. And so private equity has become a kind of a separate capital universe, separate from the stocks that are traded every day on the stock exchange. Uh, these private equity complexes oversee larger and larger numbers of workers in the US. It's up to one or eight or nine, one out of eight, every eight or nine workers by their own industry reports. Um, 
of course, many American workers don't realize they work for private equity because they don't make any kind of disclosures because they're not part of the listed stock exchange company reporting regime. They um, they basically don't put out reports about the businesses that they own. And so a lot of people work for private equity and don't even realize it. Um, they're now somewhere in the range of 15 to 20 percent of the entire uh, corporate world in the U.S. And that's well up from where they were 20 years ago. Okay, so there's a quick sketch of the two kinds of funds. You you mentioned with respect to index funds that one of the reasons that they've grown so rapidly and, and why they've been so effective is because they're able to do what they do inexpensively. As in fact, people have been able to now trade stocks and, and do investing virtually for nothing with, with, with online companies. How has that impacted the index fund business? Well, so it's true that the direct brokerage costs of investing have fallen dramatically over the last 30 years as competition was spurred by some deregulation in the 70s. But the real costs of direct investing still remain reasonably high. And, and the reason for that is you have to spend a fair amount of time, if you do your own investing, paying attention to um, the performance of the companies, the, whether the companies even exist. Sometimes they are sold in a merger. Uh, uh, you have to keep track of things for tax reporting purposes every year as you buy and sell. Um, so there's a fair amount of direct time and energy and, and, and focus you have to spend if you're doing your own investing. And so while the brokerage cost side of it has fallen, um, the effort involved really has not. The index fund product offers you not only low cost, but also you don't have to pay any attention to what is going on in all of those areas. We'll keep track of all of that for you. We'll send you a quarterly statement. We'll send you uh, an annual tax reporting document. And and that's basically all you have to worry about. And and that's so that's meant that even though brokerage costs have come down, which might make you think any kind of fund investing would become less uh, relatively attractive, actually, the index funds have continued to grow again at that that 15% rate over the past 30 years, despite the, the dramatic fall in brokerage costs. The fall in brokerage costs also benefited the index funds directly because that means their own trading is very, very cheap these days too. Uh, and they're able to pass those cost savings along in the form of their very low fees. So as a financial product, it's amazing. Like their index funds, I think, are quite an amazing way for most Americans to invest. They're so good at it that they're just getting to a, a scale that makes them not really passive, which is sort of the way they traditionally advertise themselves. We're going to be passive. They still are passive in the sense they're not picking and choosing companies, but they're forced to be active in the sense of owners. They they control the votes of the shares that are in the fund, and that's what generates the problem. And in fact, one of the problems is that these companies own so much, the, these index funds own so much stock, own so much of, of companies that, in fact, they have an extraordinary amount of power that, that combined the four top have owned 20% of, of the S&P 500. Yeah, it's actually even a little higher than when I when I wrote 20% in the book. It's now up around 25 uh, for a lot of the companies in the S&P 500. You go back to the, the economies of scale that I was mentioning earlier, they, they can, they can, 
um, do what they do at a lower per dollar cost, the bigger they get. So the big guys in index funds have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. There really aren't a lot of small index fund providers and the ones who've tried to get in the business have typically not succeeded. And so not only is money flowing to index funds overall, it's flowing to the biggest funds in a way that was not true of other kinds of funds um, that were out there 30 years ago. I mean, it still exists. I mean, to be clear, there are actively managed mutual funds uh, across the country um, and they still do manage a lot of money. Um, but they're typically not quite at the same scale because in order to pick and choose stocks, um, you're actually better off if you're not trying to do it with huge amounts of money, because the more money you have flowing into one of the stocks you pick, the more likely other people will notice and suddenly your very good investment will turn out to be an average one. Um, so most actively managed mutual funds are not nearly the same size as the index fund. So as money has shifted from T. Rowe Price and um, you know American funds and Dodge and Cox out there, uh, over to the index fund product, it's also concentrated. And that's why the big four index funds are at a, they, they own far more stock collectively than the four biggest uh, other kinds of mutual funds. So the big four now, last, I just did another check a, a couple of months ago, and it's now up about 25% at most of the S&P 500. And that's formal votes, which actually is, an understatement of their real power. Why? Because a lot of people don't vote. If you do your own direct investing, it's a big pain to have to invest, sorry, to have to read the proxy statements and think about all the votes for 4,000 companies. And if you even own 100 of them, that's a whole lot of voting uh, activity that you, in theory, might do. Um, a lot of people who own directly just don't vote at all. And when you don't vote, that effectively shifts power to those who do vote. That's true in the political system. It's also true in, in, in corporate governance. And uh, the result of that is that it's even though you look on the, the formal numbers, 20, 25 percent, it's really more like 30 percent of the actual votes typically are coming from just four index fund complexes. So Vanguard, Fidelity, State Street, BlackRock, you mentioned them. You know, if, if they get together and they agree on something, it's almost impossible for other groups of shareholders to outvote them. They are they are the swing vote in almost all of the contested uh, corporate votes that occur. And what are we seeing with respect to how they are exercising this power in corporate America today? Well, um, it's kind of a mixed bag. They're um, they're low cost, so they don't spend gigantic amounts of money thinking about how companies ought to run. They do have a substantial staff. Um, you know, last time I looked, BlackRock was up towards 100 full-time people thinking about all the companies in their governance. But as I mentioned, 4,000 or more companies. So that still leaves not a lot of time for them to think about any one company in a serious way. So they, they're, they're not, you know, they're not, I don't want people to think I'm suggesting they're on the phone every day telling CEOs what to do. That's not really the image you ought to have. Um, instead, Every year, shareholders have to vote, and when they do vote, these guys drive the outcomes. They also, in between elections, do take their jobs as stewards of this money seriously. They have to by law, and they do, I think, as a good business practice. And so they will call up companies and, and talk to them. And 
some companies they will lean in on and they typically for good reason focus on the companies that are underperforming their industry or um, have some kind of obvious corporate governance problem and so most of the time what they're doing is pushing and nudging and um and jawboning um, now any shareholder can do that but if you own nine percent of the shares you're much more likely to get somebody to pick up the phone than when you own nine shares uh or you know a tiny number which is what i typically own um so they get their phone calls returned and then even more importantly you know the person at the company who's talking to the index fund representative they know that come the next election of the board of directors of that company this fund will matter if there's a fight It'll also matter if they need a vote for a merger, which there's a lot of mergers. A lot of companies do a lot of merging and acquiring, and, and you typically have to get shareholder approval for those things. And it used to be a rubber stamp. You just would get shareholders to vote yes, like management almost never faced no votes. That's changed in part because of index funds. So index funds are much more likely to vote no than any other kind of uh, you know, individual investor that they're replacing. So when again, when they call up, the CEO kind of knows sometime in the next few years, I might want to do an acquisition. I better make sure they're they're happy. And so you put all that together and it's not that they're steering the steering wheel of every company, but they are basically saying, here's the roadmap we want you to follow. Here's where you're going off course. And so that kind of influence is pretty pervasive. And then, as I say, sometimes when there's a fight at a company, these funds will determine the outcome. And that's not frequent, but it does happen. Um, the Exxon fight I, from two years ago, I, I talk about in the book as an example. Um, but every year, even without a board fight, um, another example that's not in the book because it came after I wrote it, um, Starbucks just had a big shareholder battle over its labor policy, over whether it's treating workers fairly. And a lot of the shareholders were pushing Starbucks to get an independent assessment done. So it wasn't just take our word for it. We're doing a good job. Let's hire somebody neutral to come in and really evaluate whether we're obeying the labor laws or otherwise treating our workers. Right. So this was teed up as a shareholder fight back in the spring. And the index funds, again, they determined the outcome. It ended up passing, meaning Starbucks management lost. The shareholders have now pushed them to do something they didn't want to do. Uh, and that would not have come out that way had it not been for for one of the index funds, State Street, which voted in favor. The other two actually voted against. So that shows, you know, they're not always aligned, the, the index funds, um, but but collectively they determine how how companies are being governed. And talk about the growing power of private equity. The amount of money that's in the hands of private equity now is a staggering amount of money and growing all the time. And their power is growing. Talk about that side of it. Yeah. So private equity, again, they're kind of in a different world than index funds because they're they're buying whole companies. So, you know, it's not like a battle between directly between private equity and index funds uh, when a private equity company buys through one of its funds a business, as you mentioned, like Simon Schuster, they just bought what used to be called um, Clear Channel, owns a bunch of radio stations. Th those acquisitions take all the stock out of the stock market. And so the fund just owns the entire business. Um, they've been 
growing, as I mentioned, very rapidly too, uh, private equity funds. And the buyouts they do have been uh, increasing their share of ownership of the American economy. Um, as I mentioned, somewhere in the 15 to 20% range is a rough estimate. It's actually hard to know with precision because they don't put out reports about all of the companies they own. Uh, so that estimate is based on trade groups and uh, uh, other sources of, of data. Um, the way private equity functions, once they buy all the stock, which is the typical way they, they take over a company, obviously there's no one else to fight with. They're in charge. They really run the business. And um, they do it, as I mentioned, also pretty aggressively. They're, you know, you, you can think of them as like hyper capitalists. Whatever capitalism generally is pushing companies to do, they're, they're doing it the most um, because they've borrowed a lot of their money to raise the capital to buy the business. They got to pay that debt back. They have to typically pay it back on a pretty aggressive timetable in order to resell the company in a few years and make a profit. They want to make a profit, so they're are, you know they're coming in by paying a price, and then they're going to exit, and they need to get the price up in order uh, themselves to make a profit promoting the business. So they're um, on every dimension you can think of how to make a company generate more cash. That's what private equity does. Um, and in some settings, I think that's actually a, a healthy thing. There are, there are a fair number of businesses from time to time that are just badly run. And private equity will come in and quickly eliminate some of the mistakes and get the company back on track. And then they resell and make a profit. And that, that's, a, that's a good part of what they do. Having said that, they also take risk with the debt that they borrow. That pushes up the risk they may go bankrupt. They're more likely to go bankrupt than many other kinds of ownership structures. Um, that obviously is not a happy outcome. Um, we don't really know what the risks they run are because they don't report about the company level risks that they're taking. And in some industries, they seem to repeatedly be making other kinds of mistakes as well. Um, one of the things that I think has been interesting to watch is they've pushed into segments of the economy that 30, 40 years ago, private equity did not touch. Traditionally, private equity only went after companies that were kind of mature, basic, you know, widget companies, the way economists talk about it. You know, they have some inputs, they transform them, they sell some products. It's all kind of basic um, and therefore relatively simple. And therefore, when they're doing the efficiencies, um, it's sort of also relatively straightforward. They've pushed increasingly in the last 20 years into service businesses, um, professionalized service businesses like healthcare, nursing homes, pet care, go down the list. Um, they kind of have been pushing into more and more industries, in part because they're competing with each other and in part because they're getting bigger and bigger and they, they need to look for new uh, pastures to try to, uh, to take over. I think in those sectors, their model is a little more... Um, socially risky, let's just put it that way. Um, and the reason is traditionally, say in healthcare, we, we, we can't precisely regulate in like a detailed way how doctors treat their patients or how nurses manage residents of a, of a retirement home. Instead, Instead of like detailed rules, which just wouldn't work, there's too many variables and it changes all the time. 
we kind of rely heavily as a society on the professionals in those businesses to to adhere to professional norms and to put the patient first. It's not always perfect, even in a traditionally doctor-owned business, but better than, I think, attempting to rely on detailed rules and better than no um, professional norms at all. And I worry that private equity, it kind of just runs counter to that. They come in, they take over a business. They're not professionals. They may not care about the professional norms at all unless it makes them more cash in the short run. And they only own businesses for five to 10 years before they resell them. And I think that business model is a bit in tension with, to put it mildly, the the kind of needs for society of some of these other kinds of businesses that they've been taking over. And I think that's where they've run into the most trouble. It's where they've generated certainly the worst uh, uh, media coverage. Um, there's some powerful negative testimony that you can listen to that was played in the um, uh, that was generated in the in the Congress over the last few years, and it's also a source of political risk, I think, ultimately for the whole industry, because as they expand uh, and get bigger and bigger, they're going to be taking on businesses that I just don't think fit a heavily debt-funded, highly risky, very aggressive business model. So that's private equity. Talking about the broader issue of the problem of 12 and the concentration of power, we have the index funds, as you've talked about, controlling 20, 25% now of of corporate America, the ever-growing power of private equity. Talk about the dangers of so much corporate power in so few hands. Yeah, so separate and apart from the private equity worries I was just sketching, Both index funds and private equity funds have, as I've mentioned, economies of scale. So they do better as financial firms, the bigger they get. And then that just kind of becomes a self-fulfilling, self-perpetuating cycle where they do well, they get more assets, they get bigger because they get bigger, they do better, they gather more assets, et cetera. And that process, I think, has been already unfolding for a couple of decades and doesn't show any sign of turning around as a matter of just financial business logic. Um, the same forces that have led them to grow over the past 25 years are still in place. And on both sides, then, you get concentration. You get, with growth of these firms, you get more and more economic power in a small number of hands. 12 people is the image I have in the title of the book, Problem of 12. Um, and so even if you think these organizations are fantastic as a financial matter, and I do think that about index funds, I'm a little less sure about private equity because they don't disclose much and I can't really assess them. But even if you think they're great financial tools for pure financial purposes, there's just something fundamentally um, frightening, frankly, to most people when they're told 12 people control the whole economy or something that's getting to be a bigger and bigger piece of the overall economy. Because economic power, of course, conveys political power, and not just in legislation, but just in the overall effects of the way policy rolls out in this country. Um, so the problem of 12 that I sketch in the book is as these firms get bigger and bigger, more and more control of more and more businesses is being concentrated in the hands of a smaller number of people um, to a point where 
you know, if trends continued, you'd have virtually every listed company completely controlled by index funds, and you'd have most of the rest of the economy controlled completely by private equity firms, and not just them collectively, but the biggest, you know, four or so firms each and 12 or so people in, in total. Uh, and that's a thought that strikes most people as not sustainable. We, we're not comfortable in American democratic history with the idea of that much concentrated, unchecked power. And I, I predicted when I first wrote about this a few years ago, I continue to predict in the book that the political system is going to respond. And it already has to some extent. There are bills pending in, in Congress that would go after both industries. And I think oh, as their power continues to grow, inevitably, those kinds of legislative responses are going to get more and more support. And frankly, it'll become more and more a topic of political conversation as much as financial conversation. To what extent, though, and you touched on this a moment ago in saying about economic power is political power, essentially, to the extent that that these groups, that these index funds and private equity and even the largest too big to fail banks altogether have such political power by virtue of their economic power, can they prevent any legislative redress to, to their continued growth? So that's that's one of the scary elements here, right, is that we know in our political system, money helps get you political outcomes. And the more money these index funds and private equity funds gather, the more potential influence they have that way. Now, the reason I don't think that guarantees their permanent dominance of everything is, is that we've seen the story before. You, you alluded there to banks. And while we all may have views about banks, and they certainly caused a great deal of mischief uh, in yeah, mischief is understating it. They, they caused a lot of harm, frankly, to, to Americans uh, in the mortgage bubble and the housing bubble and then the collapse in 2008. Um, here's something to note about banks. They have long been forbidden, barred by law from buying non-financial businesses. So Citigroup and Goldman legally cannot buy uh, General Motors or Apple. They're just, and they have been prohibited by law from doing that basically for our entire history. Um, likewise, insurance companies, which can be gigantic, and they, they also have economies of scale in doing what they're doing. They've been prohibited by law since the early 20th century from buying more than a modest amount of stock in non-insurance businesses. Um, so again, um, AIG, which played a, a contributing role in the in the housing meltdown, was not able during the lead up to that to go out and buy you know Microsoft and, and Facebook, even though they had you know the, the banks and the insurance companies had ample resources financially to to be able to buy some gigantic companies. They just legally were not allowed to. Now, why are those laws in place? Those laws were put in place because we had the problem of twelve before. Uh, when banks first emerged, they threatened to take over the whole economy. The political system responded and put into place prohibitions. Same with insurance. I think the same thing is going to occur here. And I think ultimately, as um, much influence as money can buy, it still doesn't really directly translate into votes. Um, it, it's, it, it can get out the vote. It can, it can enhance the power of a message. But while I'm uh, I agree with you that the industries will lobby and push back against the political system as it tries to 
restrain them. I don't think they're going to succeed in the end. I think they will be forced to live with restrictions of various kinds. And I think the first step for them, they're already starting to take, and it's partially in recognition of this. Um, so the index funds, for example, are already starting to think about and experiment with ways to reduce their own power by letting their own investors choose policies that would guide them in how they vote. Now, it's still a work in progress, and they it's not at all like they're just passing the votes through. Don't get that idea. Um, but they're already beginning to experiment with things that would reduce their own power, a sign that I think they, they know the political system eventually will force to do something. And on the private equity side, while they're more modest, I think, in what they're trying to do to, to stave off political pressure, they put out their own reports, which are in some sense voluntary, uh, that are quite extensive. And you can learn about the overall private equity business from the documents they put out. Now, they're not anything like a substitute for real disclosure regulations. They're not comparable. They're not consistent. There's no audit of them. Uh, they're in large ways kind of sales tools. But, um, but the very fact that they're spending a lot of money on these um, voluntary reports shows that they know they have a bit of a, uh, a deficit when it comes to the legitimacy and accountability that the public uh, uh, perceives them as having. And, you know, there are just too many negative stories that come out of private equity ownership, I think, for them to succeed long term in staving off all, all regulation. And, f- and finally, John, talk about the potential unintended consequences to the economy from legislation that changes the nature of both private equity and index funds, and also the consequences to democracy if these changes don't happen? That's a great double question there. And that illustrates that the problem that the book is um, trying to sketch is kind of a double problem. Um, On the one hand, I particularly alluded to think index funds are a great financial tool. Um, There's been public reports, uh, again, since I wrote the book, that that LeBron James, uh, who's not exactly a small investor, he's got a lot of money to invest, um, he somehow got connected to Warren Buffett. I'm trying to imagine the room they were in together, but many of them. And Warren Buffett said to him, you know, don't try to, to pick and choose businesses. Don't go buy a restaurant chain. Just pick an index fund and put money in it every month as you gather assets from your other activities. And that's the best way to go. And LeBron James, by all accounts, did that. And he's apparently tripled his money uh, and is now in the ranks of the billionaires when he would only have been, you know, a half a billionaire if he hadn't done that. Um, So that sort of shows, again, I, I really do think for most investors, index funds are a great product. Now, why do I say all that again in response to your question? Well, I worry that the political response to their power may make them no longer effective at doing that financial job. So I part of the reason I write the book, frankly, is to, in a way, to defend the industry or at least encourage the industry to think about how to defend itself. I don't want Washington to destroy the index fund product. I want them to find ways or work together with industry to reduce the political power they have while continuing to do a good financial job. So that's on the index fund side. Um, I'm less sure about private equity, but I, I am willing to believe that particularly when it comes, say, to second generation family-owned businesses, private equity might be a good next buyer of those businesses because 
the families may not have been really running them very well as they go into the second or third generation. And sometimes the public markets are not um, doing very well. And so there may not be an exit for those family businesses by going public. So I, I do think there is a continuing good role for private equity. And I wouldn't want to see the industry completely crushed either. Um, uh, many of my students go on to work for private equity firms, I should say, and I like them to keep getting jobs. I, I do think overall they can add value. Uh, but I do worry, again, that the political system sometimes is blunt in the way that it responds, particularly in the middle of a downturn or a recession. And if you can roll out some very stark and clear examples of how private equity has ruined businesses and hurt people, um, the political system may well do things to it that will make it unable to continue to function. And I think that's probably a, a, an overreaction, and I worry about that too. That's on the one side. Those are threats to the businesses from the political system. On the other hand, if we do nothing and we let them continue to grow, we really could reach a point where, um, you know, the word that you would use is oligarchy. Uh, not democracy anymore, to describe the American political system. If a dozen people, through their ownership of financial institutions, can control even more of the economy than they currently can, maybe do it even more openly than they currently do, um, without fear of any kind of political check, well, that's very much like the system that I thought the American Revolution was intended to overturn and that we fought periodic battles over the years to try to, to rein in. And, you know, checks and balances are part of our basic political uh, logic and lore for a reason that we don't want individuals to be able to steer the, the country in a, in, a, in a narrowly defined um, uh, direction uh, for long periods of time. We want there to be periodic forced forced checks with the american people are you going in the right direction or not and i do think that you know without overstating it that if unchecked these two types of funds will acquire so much power that it really may be hard uh, to, to prevent them from doing that john coates his most recent book is The Problem of Twelve, When a Few Financial Institutions Control Everything. John, I thank you so much for spending time with us today here on the Who, What, Why podcast. Delighted to be here, Jeff. Thank um, you. Happy, happy to talk to you. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.